Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and if you play fantasy football, odds are this week's guest needs no introduction. He's Christopher Harris, the host of the Harris Football Podcast, the world's biggest independent fantasy football podcast. Chris just wrapped his sixth season doing the Harris Football Podcast, and it guided thousands of listeners, including myself, to fantasy football championships this past season. The Harris Football Podcast has won several awards, including Best Fantasy Podcast by the Fantasy Sports Writers Association, and prior to launching the Harris Football Podcast, Christopher Harris became a household name in fantasy circles during an eight-year stint with ESPN. His calling card with the Harris Football Podcast is watching all the film of every game to establish opinions you can't get simply by reading a box score. It reminds me of the adage, there's three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And Chris's angle would be that analytics are fine, but film don't lie. And so his emphasis is less on what just happened and more about what we can learn from what just happened and what that could mean for what's going to happen next. So in our discussion, we get into Chris's background, including his unconventional career path. We also touch on his general philosophy when it comes to fantasy football. And then we dig into his thoughts on specific players who can make or break the 2021 season, including a first look at Carson Wentz going to the Colts. Of course, with betting being a pillar of props and hops, we get into some of that as well. Chris is an avid better, so we do discuss gambling and also, Chris is the author of four novels and a passionate fan of indie rock, so we weave books and music into the conversation as well. Overall, Chris is smart, thoughtful, and caring. I'm fortunate to call him a friend, and definitely fortunate to have him on this show. So if this sounds good, please go ahead and subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would be incredibly helpful if you could take a quick moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on Twitter to keep the conversation going, at mlandis18. And if you're looking to get your sports betting fix year-round, also make note to check out Dimers.com. They're providing NBA and NHL daily picks, and there's also a great read on the site right now, Top 5 Michael Jordan Gambling Stories, in honor of his 58th birthday earlier this week. Alright, so with some housekeeping taken care of, let's get to this week's conversation with Christopher Harris. All right, I'm pleased to welcome Christopher Harris, host of the Harris Football Podcast. It's a show that in its infancy was known as the little podcast that could, but fast forward a few years and it's now the world's biggest independent fantasy football podcast. Chris, thanks for joining Props and Hops. And we now have a new record for most Twitter followers by anyone to appear on this show by, let's call it a narrow six-figure margin. (laughs) I'm glad you're keeping track. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. I, it's just, you know, who are, who, who is this again? We're, we're, we're kind of real life friends, right? Yeah, it's your friend who, uh, sometime about a year ago, we did the Rose Bowl flea market right before that pandemic <laughs> rocked the world. Sometime. Yeah, that's like, it's the second to last. I was thinking about that. You and your lovely wife and I went to the, went to Pasadena, went to the flea market, and it was the second to last thing that I did before the world ended. Uh, it was, it was basically like what, five days probably before everything shut down? It was a Sunday. Yeah, it was a Sunday. Then I think of March 11th is the day that music died, so to speak. That was, uh, Go Bear, Tom Hanks. And then, yeah, that Thursday we were pretty much home indefinitely and, and that's been the last 11 months plus. So do you know what the last thing I did was? 
the lap social thing. You, so you and your wife were like the second to last people I saw socially. That was like five days before it ended. Like two days before it ended, I went to lunch with Liz Loza. <laughs> she's the last oh, person nice. I saw. Yeah. She's little and she swears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's indeed. Yeah. Hopefully something that we can all get back to again before too long. But in the meantime, I'd love to dig into your background a little bit to set the stage for some of the football stuff we'll get into. But interestingly enough, um, aside from sports, you have an MFA from the University of Texas. You've written four novels, a fifth one's in the works. That doesn't sound like the typical career path to somebody who would then host a fantasy football show as big as yours. How would you describe your background and what's gotten you to this point in your career? Well, first of all, I have to clear it up because I didn't get an MFA from University of Texas. Great. I got an MBA. I got an MBA from the University of Texas and then fast forward several years and then I got MFA from UMass. So I'm sure ah, – no, it's fine. I'm sure all the UMass MFAs who are listening were like shaking their fists at the sky. Like how could you possibly rid us of our of our wonderful esteemed alumnus? They don't know and they don't care. Um, but I, I'll, that's, but yeah. So, I mean, I have an MBA, right? I, 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 uh, had one year after undergrad. I got an MBA right after almost, you know, so like only one through. I, I, I did regular real jobs for most of my twenties. Um, but I'd always wanted to be a fiction writer. So my routine, you know all this stuff. I'm going to say for the podcast, but I've told you all this stuff. But um, and yet I forgot and already butchered it once. So no, I got fine. it out of the way. My mulligan's no. taken care of. But yes, it's please fine. continue. No, I just feel like I'm being boring because you're like, I know, I know, but um, but we're recording it. So like, I always want to be a writer. I was actually talking with a friend from high school, uh, and he was like, you know, you used to talk about in sophomore year of high school being a novelist, right? And I like didn't really remember, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, so I would, I had all these real jobs, these MBA type jobs, but I would wake up at frickin' 5.30 in the morning and, and work on fiction. None of which was any good. All of which would be humiliating if I ever saw it now, but you know, you have to, you have to write bad stuff to get to good stuff, whatever. Um, and there came a point where I didn't want to do real jobs anymore and I decided to go back to school. I luckily got into that MFA program. It's a good, good program at UMass. And when I finished it, all I really knew was I didn't want to go get another MBA. I didn't want to have another real job. I had worked for ad agencies. I'd worked for like dot com startups. Um, met nice people, but just I just wasn't really happy. So all I knew was I didn't want to get a real job. And I won this contest to write for free about fantasy sports, baseball, and football. And I was like, sure, I'll just do it because you know I'm living in Amherst, Mass, and I don't really have any direction and all I know is I'd rather not move back to Boston or Austin or New York or anywhere else and get a real job. So I'll do this for a little while. And within a few months of doing that, I mean, it was just great timing because it's right when fantasy sports started to really super go mainstream. And Brandon Funston from Yahoo, my longtime friend, uh, you know, found out about my stuff and he had openings at Yahoo. He was hiring there. And he said, hey, you know the thing that you do with that website? For no money, I'll pay you some money if you want to write for us. So I was like, okay, cool. And then within less than a year, uh, ESPN then saw my stuff at Yahoo and said, hey, the stuff you were doing for Yahoo, we'll pay you a little more and we'll put you on TV. And I was like, okay. So I sort of uh, fell ass backwards into, into, into doing it. Um, worked for ESPN for eight years. And then went now for six. I've now been on my own doing, doing my own 
uh, podcast and now YouTube and stuff. And it's gone really well. Um, but it isn't, I mean, the thing that I always do, fortunately, as a sidelight, or maybe the fantasy stuff is a sidelight, but, um, you know, I have half the year where I'm very, very intense covering the NFL, and then I have half the year where it's much less intense, and that's when I write books. So, I don't know, am I a novelist who does fantasy stuff, or am I a fantasy person who writes novels? I, you know, I make more money on the fantasy stuff. Yeah, well, it's nice to have that range. And one thing we'll get into later is some football betting, since betting is a core part of this podcast. But I really think bigger picture, one of the biggest bets you've probably made in your life was on yourself to leave ESPN and start this show. And really, regardless of what this show did, just know that you are branching out to do your own thing. What was your approach behind that decision? There was, again, everything seems to have, you know, there are so many false starts in everybody's life where it, it looks from the outside like, wow, that would have, would have, calculated smart move that was and in fact i mean that one turned out great and and but there have been lots of things that i've tried that haven't turned out great so i mean i i like people at espn that they treated me really well i wouldn't have the following i have at all obviously if if i hadn't been at espn they're great but i felt like things had sort of run their course there um every season started to feel a little bit like groundhog's day these were always going to be your tasks and they were, you know, fun and it felt dumb complaining about them because you're getting to go on TV to talk about something really stupid, but it still wasn't really making me all that happy. So I left not really having much of a plan other than thinking, well, you know, I, I had had a podcast at ESPN that was one day a week at first and then two days a week, but I always kind of wanted to try my hand at doing, covering it every day, you know, doing that thing. And, um, so I thought, all right, well, since I I didn't really leave to start anything, I just kind of left to leave. And honestly, if it had hap- if I'd left in whatever February, if my contract had run out in like February, I don't know what I would have done. It just so happened that the 2015 season I had spent the whole spring and summer preparing for, so the whole season was sort of in my head. And uh, my contract ran out like end of July, I think, or maybe August 1st or something. And so since it was all in my head, I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll. I'll try and and make a make a podcast five days a week and see how that goes, and it was such a you know such a naive thought. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to record one. I didn't know how to produce one. I didn't know how to get ads for one. I didn't know how to host it. I didn't know how to promote it. I didn't know how to get it on iTunes. I didn't know how to. I know I knew nothing. Zero. I all completely learned it all by myself. Um, I mean, not by myself, like with help of the internet, I just looked up everything up on the internet, but like, it was just me. And when I had the idea to do it, I was like, you know, most shows are two or more people talking about fantasy. And that's, that, that would be okay. If you were going to do one show a week, you could just ask your buddy to go, Hey, do this with me and you're not going to make any money, but so what? It's just an hour of your time a week, but I was going to do a show every day, every weekday. And I didn't really feel right saying, take this, take this risk where you're going to make no money. And I don't know if this is going to make any money. So I, I've, I have a friend, uh, my friend Bill introduced me virtually to a guy who worked for Minnesota Public Radio. And I remember a phone call that I had with him was really generous with his time. And I said, yeah, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you have any advice? So I was just kind of asking everybody for advice and also like, Oh my God, how do you host a podcast? 
And, uh, he said, you're going to do this by yourself. And I was like, well, I don't, I can't rope anybody else in. So yeah. And he said, like, I'm paraphrasing, but I've, I've said this on many shows. So I remember myself saying it. Maybe I'm quoting myself, quoting myself, quoting him, <laughs> but, uh, it, he said something like, well, it's a rare person who can carry an hour of radio by themselves. You're talking Howard Stern, Rush Limbaugh, RIP. And, uh, and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. So that was, that was the conversation that spawned the format of my show, which is not me by myself entirely, me for half of a show and then me with a guest for the other half of the show. And, and, you know, it's a rotating guest and people seem to like that and kind of it's, that's what it's always kind of turned into, at least to this point. Never say always. But all of which is to say, wow, that was a long answer, but that's the story. I mean, the, the, all of which is to say wasn't particularly planned. And at the time it didn't feel like that much of a bet on, you know, I'm going to hit it big. It was much more. I just don't want to do this other thing. I'll see if I can do this. And then by the end of the season, it probably won't have worked. And then in 2016, I'll have to go find a real job. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's really cool to hear how your approach, just learning so much. I know it wasn't necessarily on your own with the help of the internet, talking to others, of course, but right. a lot of, I think there's a lot of initiative and a self-starting mentality that's played a big role in your show becoming what it is. And one more thing about podcasts in general before we get into fantasy football, it sure. seems like these days just about everybody has a podcast. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who are either thinking about starting one or maybe they have one. I mean, this one's fairly new. We're about 30 episodes in and looking to grow one. Like back in the infancy of the Harris Football Podcast, is there anything that you would go back and tell yourself to do differently? I mean – it was again great. I was sort of my second great timing because I really did it right as everybody's mom learned what a podcast was. And so to some degree, the timing was really key. If I, probably as, as good or, or not good as anybody thinks my actual show is, if it were starting right now, it wouldn't be as big as it actually is because there's just so many other shows and there just weren't as many at the time. I mean, so the advice I'd probably give myself if I could go back would be like, do it a year earlier, dummy, because uh, that would have been even better. But uh, just speaking in in general, because there's such a crowded field, and I don't want to pawn myself off as an expert at all, Matt, but um, like what's the show about and why are you, not you, but you know, the person who's going to make the show the right person to do it? In other words, can you find your voice and can it be different than the offerings that are already out there? I mean, I'll do a lot. I don't, not so much this time of year, but when July and August come, I'll do, you know, 30 guest spots probably. Cause I just say yes to anybody, anybody listening, I'll be on your, you know, I don't need to be like actual in real, in real life friends like I am with Matt. Like I'll be on pretty much anyone's show. Um, and, my, you know, I'm not listening to the full show, but my impression on being, and these are mostly fantasy football shows, like that are people saying, "Hey, I like. You. Would you come on mine?" And I say, "Sure." But their show sounds a lot like a lot of other shows. They're, they kind of ha their analysis feels like it's kind of what I hear everywhere. They're all sort of like each other. They have might have like different nicknames. Or they might have different, you know, joke inside jokey things. But in the end, their analysis or their general 
way they approach uh, talking about the subject matter feels like there isn't a lot of difference between them. I can't tell them apart once I've done them. So maybe the biggest and most important thing is the same advice. If you know, I get a lot of questions from people who want to be fiction writers. Same thing. Like, why do you want to do it? What specifically do you want to say? Why are you the right person to say it? And are you willing to work on it and be bad at it for a while? Because you probably will be like, you know, the, I can't, I can't say that if you build the perfect show, you're definitely automatically going to succeed no matter what. But I can say that if it's kind of just the same old schlock, there's almost no way. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for finding your voice and then having some ownership of that lane you want to pursue. And that could be a good segue into the fantasy football side of things because you have a pretty unique perspective when it comes to how you evaluate players, namely watching every play of every game. And we can get into that. But first off, how would you describe your general philosophy when it comes to evaluating players and putting things together from that fantasy perspective? I guess what you just said, I mean, that, that, that we're pretty terrible at a lot of things when it comes to, especially NFL analysis, because there's just not a lot of games. So, whereas, I mean, so when I, when I was at ESPN for a, for the beginning chunk of my time there, I was covering baseball. I was covering NASCAR also. I was just doing whatever they told me to do. It was a good opportunity. And, uh, and baseball, I 100% believe in analytics that they today tell underlying truths because the batters and pitchers have a very repeatable one-on-one interaction 600 and something times a year. Like, a, there's a lot that you can divine from numbers in baseball that I just don't think you can in the NFL. And it's, it's just easier. It's just so much easier to look at a spreadsheet and divide a bunch of numbers and apportion a bunch of targets and decide you know what's going to happen. I just think we're not very good at analytics in football because we're not very good, at least when it comes to individual player statistics. You know, there's some there's some people who are pretty darn good at modeling game outcomes. I'm not I'm not uh, going to take the you know, for my my lane is fantasy football, and so therefore trying to predict individual stats on, of of players. Uh, it just comes down a lot of times to past seasons, and I'm you know looking at priors of coaches and looking at priors of players and. It's not like I said this on my show this week. It's not like I go into every season saying I'm going to pretend every team is eight and eight and I have no idea who the good offenses are and who the bad offenses are. That's dumb. But there's a huge over-reliance when people are starting to think about their fantasy drafts on what the picture of the NFL looked like last year. And it just changes so much from year to year that my, my goal is to think about talent as much as possible it's not it's not possible to completely divorce it from situation and situations matter we're just not great at predicting them before the season starts so i'm always going to try to add value in terms of talking about players i think are good and then we kind of go from there yeah i love that i was fortunate to catch on to some of your earlier advice this season james robinson miles gaskin were league winners in a lot of cases i know robinson didn't do anything for the championship round, but Gaskin certainly did. And those are guys that before the season, the backfields in Jacksonville and Miami were not something anybody wanted to touch. So I think that's a good example of just paying attention to what you see and being willing to adjust quickly once you see it. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I want to paint either one of those players as total world beaters, but immediately when I saw James Robinson week one, I was like, oh, you definitely want to pick him up. It's not a fluke and it's not just volume based. He would be a good player even if he was getting 12 to 15 touches. He's getting 20, which is great, but uh, he's good. He's a pretty good player who's now probably going to get overdrafted depending on what Jacksonville does in that backfield. And then um, Gaskin, I felt like, I think Gaskin might, you know, Gaskin's a different kind of player, but uh, someone else you could look at and say, oh, he's, He's like legitimately a pretty good NFL player who, you know, on a on a real team that's got real threats probably needs to be paired with someone, but definitely can be very useful. Yeah, and a quick non-fantasy tangent that gets at this same philosophy. I think back to the Super Bowl that we just watched. Patrick Mahomes has gotten I think any criticism would be out of line. I thought he played amazing. And yet you look at his box score, a lot of incomplete passes were actually some of the most impressive plays I think I've ever seen a quarterback make. Right. And it's yeah. almost as if he's getting more criticism for losing in the Super Bowl than had he not made it in the first place. And of course, watching a game, even when you are trying to be objective in your evaluation, there's a whole lot of subjectivity there. Oh, so it's totally. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but it's totally subjective. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And I'll toss it right back to you because I'm wondering when you're watching film, what do you look for? to inform your opinion on how good a player is. It's like pornography, Matt. You know it when you see it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of just if uh, the way I have thought about it now for doing this this way, watching every single game, like within by 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 Tuesday morning, I've watched game film on every game, right? Of every single week. So there's you're just running your eyes across so much damn film. That, and it's, it's so painful by, you know, mid-season, you just don't want to do it, but you just do it, right? You just keep going because you go, oh, this is going to help. This is going to help the show and just help credibility, whatever. It's just like that. If you're going to do it, if you're say you're going to do it, you got to do it. And if you lay your eyes across all that film, you're almost overlapping every game on top of every other game in your memory. And every other time you've seen a receiver and every other time you've seen a running back and, you're absolutely subjectively going, well, that just looks different. And sometimes it looks different for the bad, but more often what you're looking for are the guys who look different for the good. And I don't know what to say. I, I don't think I have any special magic powers, and I certainly am not right on every player. Good heavens, right? I'm absolutely not because it is totally subjective. Not only that, but I can say that talent should be the reason you draft somebody, but sometimes really talented players have bad years. We see it all the time. So there's not any foolproof way to do this, but you know, I'll say I, I almost think anybody who made themselves go through, like turn themselves inside out through the ringer of watching all these games would absolutely start to come to pretty firm conclusions. And I bet we wouldn't, because it's subjective, we probably wouldn't have the exact same conclusions, but I bet we'd have a lot of overlap. Yeah. And one area that can provide probably too much overlap if people are over-reliant, again, circling back to what you mentioned about stats with analytics being fine, but they're not gospel. One of the first things I remember bonding with a friend about when it came to your show was yards per carry. You mm -hmm. have got to be the unofficial president of the anti-yards per carry <laughs> fan club. And I'm wondering if there are any other stats in 2021 that you think people give too much value to. Yeah, what's interesting about yards per carry is, don't you feel like even in the sh in the time I've been doing the show and the time you've listened to the show, people talk about it way less, don't they? Yes. 
Yeah. I feel like maybe I had something to do with that. Some small way. I, I, I'm not like some big national, like I'm not Peter King railing against yards per carry to millions of people every day, but I, f- I like to believe in my own deluded way that I had something to do with that. Uh, I don't, other, other things that get treated as God, as gospel that I don't like. Um, I think the whole QBR, QB rating, whatever you want to call it, is is just it's not useless. And yards per carry also isn't useless. It's just not anything close to the full story. There's just not a, in my my opinion, there's not a way to boil down a quarterback's entire performance over the course of a game to one number because. I'm sorry, I've looked at uh, QBR 96.2 games from two different players, and it's looked totally different. There are just times where guys are not getting any help, a la Mahomes in the Super Bowl hitting face masks. There are times when teams just aren't being aggressive. There are teams where there are times when the quarterback is being heroic. There are times where he's just flat out missing throws, and they can come out to the same score. Uh, I, I'm pretty wildly skeptical of boiling anything down to one number anyway. And I, I, but, but you can tell me because I'm frankly, I'm frankly not that tapped into analytics, the analytics community. And you can tell me whether people are taking that number seriously or not, but I don't. Yeah, I know on the betting side of things, some of the more prominent handicappers talk about QBR if they're comparing the quarterbacks in a game and trying to assign much value, uh, when it comes to a point spread could also be dangerous because anything that the public is talking about. If it's something that you and I would be talking about or another podcast or a barbershop type of conversation, that's that's either built into the line or it's irrelevant. So it's something to be mindful of. I mean, so I'll also say this and, and I, I think these, these kind of next gen things that are, that are based on tracking actually in, in the pads or whatever, you know, not really in the pad, but you know, like the tracking of, of motion and things like that. Um, there's a lot of like elusiveness ratings now. That I think are full of poo. <laughs> I think are really based on, you just can't, I just don't think you can boil it down to a number. I, there are, I, I've looked at next gen elusiveness or, or separation and, and, and thought to myself, okay, yeah, well, that guy's good. Yep. I get it. I, I, oh, I like that guy too. Wait, that guy's the third most elusive running. I just don't, there are times where I don't understand where they're getting it from and they're getting it from just the average distance. To the tackle, average distance that, uh, somebody was when he was one yard down the field and got, you know, got away from a defense or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Those, those kind of, there's, there's potential in those. I just don't think they've figured out what exactly it is and ha- everything wants to be boiled down to one number, elusiveness rating or, or separation or whatever, uh, that I'm, that I'm interested in, but still skeptical that they're really telling us anything we can use yet. Uh, in, in, in a different vein, like I'm friends with guys at Pro Football Focus and it's very clear they're what they, you know, their team is also watching every game. Not only they're watching every game, they're watching every player on every play and actually trying to give them a grade on every single play, which is, you know, that's what I do times a million. That's incredibly ambitious and time consuming and really hard to do. And yet, then you come out with, like, Damian Harris being the third best running back last year, and I just, I'm like, I don't know how you could have watched this and found Damian Harris to be the third best running back in the NFL. I don't know how, I don't know how I'm supposed to take your grades seriously when that's a possible outcome. It's fine to say that he was good, 
But the problem with putting a number, trying to come up with the kind of the one number thing is, man, it just feels like, doesn't it feel when someone tells you Damian Harris was the third best running back in the league, doesn't it feel like your system is, is super well-intentioned and maybe trying to make the point that maybe, Hey, maybe he was a little better than you thought he was, but, but you're, you're going way too far and you sort of lose me. Don't you feel that way? Yeah. I, the first thing I think is that just doesn't pass the smell test to use that adage. So, um, yeah, yeah I think we've, we've talked about some stats, not to be discouraging to anybody who does rely on numbers for whether they're a fantasy player or an avid better. Um, I think it is good to keep them in the proper perspective, but something that on the encouraging side we could get into is that making better decisions and better bets doesn't necessarily require more time consuming media. One of my favorite phrases to come out of your show in recent years is click discipline. And when it comes to (laughs) rumors and speculation and coach speak, you always use the drop. Why would they tell us that? Consider why certain information gets out or the salary cap. The Saints right now, their cap situation's not great, but you got to think they're aware of it too, and they've known what's coming. They're probably not facing years on end of going 4-12 and 12 before they're competitive again. So they may take a step back, but I mean the Rams have recently unloaded Gurley and Goff, so there's maneuverability there. The draft coming up in a couple months, often way more noise than signal. So with that said, keeping quick discipline in mind, what news do you follow closely, and, and what do you make sure to click on and stay current with? I I'll use Roto World or whatever they're calling it now. <laughs> I gotta I gotta have a Roto World guest on my show again because I gotta rag on him. Pat Doherty, if you're listening, you're, I'm coming for you. Uh, but I, I'll use that as my clearinghouse because I'm because if anything, they kind of over deliver on on news. They're 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 gonna put everything in the feed that could, they possibly can because that's their business model, right? The the more news items they're able to get in their feed, the better their business, just financially. So I know that that's the max and I can ignore a lot of it, but at least it'll like sort of roll across my eyes and I can laugh at some of it. And, um, and then, and then some of it will go, Ooh, Oh, that's a real thing. Okay, cool. Like I, we're recording it on the day that Carson once got traded to the Colts. So that's how I found out about it. I happened to be on Roto world or whatever they're calling it now. And I, uh, I was like, oh, that happened. Okay. I wasn't happened not to be on Twitter right at that moment. Um, but you're right. Uh, they're just, they're also going to publish some beat reporter doing a chat in which he goes, yeah, gosh, I don't know how the Buccaneers could possibly resign Chris Godwin. And that becomes a big thing. And suddenly now everybody in, in who's gone to every, uh, agglomerate news news agglomeration site now has the notion in their head that Chris Godwin's gone. He's gone. Like there was the Carson Wentz definitely going to the Bears moment, right? Carson Wentz definitely going to the Bears because some dude said it in a chat or something. And now we're told they never even made an offer, which in itself is probably a lie. But the fact is, I don't know, there's there's a a, a want, a need in our cultural lives, I think, to be close to newsmakers that we aren't actually close to, to be friends with movie stars, to be defenders of comic book movies, to be uh, buddies with the GM, defenders of the of the integrity of the organization or whatever. And I just don't, I just, I don't know if I aged out of that crap. I just don't believe that I'm buddies with anybody who I don't know, really. I mean, I, I don't. I don't worry about what they say too much. I just sort of worry about the actual transaction as it happens. Um, and, and if you have that mindset that, oh, the th- you can tell 90% of the things they're trying to click on are, this might happen. 
And if you just go, oh, I'm not going to click on the things that say something might happen. I'm just going to click on the things that say they actually did happen. Boy, I, I think you clear out. <laughs> I think you just sort of, you had a lot of more headspace for like things in your actual life. Yeah, I think a great example of that to cross sports for a moment, being an Angels fan, as I believe you know, I saw that I one of their beat writers tweeted today, Shohei Otani had his first bullpen of the spring and he topped out at 90 miles per hour. And people are freaking out because he has an injury history. And if he's not topping out in the mid to high 90s, then he's not going to be as effective. And on one hand, maybe there's something there. On the other hand, it's his first bullpen of spring training more than a month before the season starts, so he probably shouldn't be totally cutting it loose. So considering larger context is definitely key, but to your point, when there is a real transaction, I think that's when we pay attention. We can dig more into Carson Wentz in a moment. There was also the Stafford Goff trade not too long ago. And when that happens, on one hand, we haven't seen these guys play for their new teams yet, so there's a lot we simply don't know. And on the other hand, we do need to make some assumptions. I think it's fair to assume that Goff going from Sean McVay to Anthony Lynn as a play caller could be a pretty big deal. But in general, how do you approach the notion of adjusting to these moves without over-adjusting to a lot of the hysteria that we can see, especially when the off-season transactions reach a fever pitch? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of buried in the long, long, one of the very long answers I've already given, which is I'm going to try as much as possible to fall back on my evaluation of how good they are as players and then let the other stuff kind of just be background noise. So if I thought Jared Goff was really good, which I think you know I never have, then to Anthony Lynn wouldn't be a reason for me to freak out because I think I just saw a quarterback be okay with Anthony Lynn as his, as his head coach. I think you root for that team. Uh, a better quarterback, but yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. If it were, in other words, the situation moving from genius McVay to somehow like dummy, uh, Lynn, I don't think Lynn's a dummy, to be honest, uh, wouldn't be the death knell unless I already was like, I don't think Jared Goff is all that good. I don't think he's terrible, but I just sort of think he's like, I've always said like better Kirk Cousins. He's okay. Uh, it's not possible to completely divorce a player's talent from what we think of his situation. My goal is to divorce it as much as we possibly can while still being reasonable, still acknowledging that, huh? Okay. Interested to see what they do with Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones. Huh? All right. Well, interesting to see if they draft more offensive linemen because they sure need it. Huh? Okay. Well, I wonder, you know, what the defense is going to look like. Cause it's been really bad for five years. You know, I'm I'm going to acknowledge all that stuff in a new evaluation of Jared Goff, but I'm going to fall back more as much as I possibly can on this notion that, I mean, my evaluation of Goff is that when the trains are running on time, when he can step into throws and see the field and get pretty good protection, he's as good as anyone in the league. He's really good. And that's why the Super Bowl year, he was really good because he had that constantly, had that all the time. But if you get him off schedule, if you get a pass rush in his face, like so many other quarterbacks, it's not unique to Goff, he's really going to struggle. And one imagines going to what I think will turn out to be a worse cast, but I'm going to try not to overreact to it. That's probably not great for Jared Goff. Yeah, not to pick too much on Goff or Anthony Lynn. Um, I kind of feel like, Goff doesn't suddenly go from above average to untouchable in my book. It would more be a case of, okay, I I would have probably pecked him somewhere right around the league average, let's say 16-ish, and maybe now it would be closer to 18 to 20. There's there's probably not a huge difference. And 
one or two weeks into the season, we might see, oh, there's actually not a downgrade or it's worse than we think. It's a lot of guesswork and being willing to quickly right. adjust. Absolutely. So. And and I'll say, like, you know, fantasy is different than than actual the quarterback that you want for your NFL team. Like, I think in most leagues, Jalen Hurts in fantasy leagues is going to get drafted ahead of Jared Goff because of the promise of the rushing yards that are just kind of out of proportionately valued for fantasy. But if you told me I need I had a season and I had to go out and win the most games possible right now, I'm taking Jared Goff. What are we talking about? Of course I am. Like until Jalen Hurts proves that he he's better as a thrower than he was at the end of last year, which was okay but not great on a terrible team, very difficult to evaluate, terrible offense. Uh I, I would take Jared Goff. So like in that rank where you said he's 16, he's he's right around the average. That might be true for for fantasy. He actually might be a little bit higher than that for for actual, if you were gonna, if like I needed a win, I need to win right now on a season to save my job. Golf might be thirteen, it might be fourteen or something. Although, I don't know, I'm I don't know why I'm making this big digression to split hairs because let's face it, the point would be that everybody from twelve to twenty-three on that list is kind of the same. They're all sort of interchangeable. Do you want golf? Do you want cousins? Do you want Wentz? Do you want? I mean, they're they're all they're. Do you want Matt Ryan? Like they all are fine. They all in the right situation where they're not getting hassled, where they don't have to make everything on the, happen on their own, where they, you know, get time to read the defense. They all can be okay. But the point of being a great quarterback is being able to do it when all those things aren't true. Yeah. And I'm starting to think that regular listeners of your show might pick up on the possibility of a quarterback comp for the infinite wide receiver sadness with the maybe QB2 territory. <laughs> it is like there are a lot of QB, a lot of QB2s. Well, and then of course someone who we rank 15th is going to wind up finishing fourth because it'll, he'll accidentally fall ass backwards into some rushing touchdowns or whatever. And then everybody will be like, see, he's great. And I'll still be like, Meh, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the point you made, um, just a moment ago was a pretty good one to move things along from what we've had to this point being a pretty high level conceptual discussion, getting a little more specific and prescriptive. In terms of the way fantasy football is structured, the game has certainly evolved over the years. I think that one quarterback leagues or leagues that play full point per reception are becoming obsolete, even though there are certainly plenty of them. And knowing what you do now and and having had more or less a front row seat to how fantasy football has evolved over the years, what would you say would be an ideal league structure? If somebody is becoming a commissioner or starting a new league when we're thinking about Maybe it's how many teams, roster sizes, different settings that stand out to you that might break for convention, but for the best looking forward. Well, first of all, from your lips to the fantasy football god's ears, I wish that it were true that one quarterback leagues and full PPR was going out of vogue because – because they're not. <laughs> that's that's the bulk of what people play. That's what ESPN changed to. Like that's – the bulk of people play the exact format that you just described that we hate. Um if, but, but that's a great lead in to don't run your league that way. And I think we both feel that way. Um, super flex, I think is almost a must if you're starting a league now. Unless, you, if you want to do a 16 team league, it's cool not to do super flex. But if you want to do anything less than that, I, I think you have to do super flex. You don't have to do anything, but I would because it creates scarcity at a position that has no scarcity. You just, when, when there are 12 or 10 team leagues drafting one quarterback, you just don't have to take one to the twelfth round. You just wait, and and everybody laugh at you, and then you end up with Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> you know, like I just, you just don't. There's no scarcity. You'll always find a solution, even if you whiff and you take Andrew Luck and he retires. <laughs> You'll find someone, hey. and it'll be he'll be fine, right? 
I've I've been there. That oh man, that strikes a nerve. Um, for the record, uh, Chris and I played in a league <laughs> called Wilson Lives. It was a lot of fantasy experts and people with Hollywood ties, and then I somehow stumbled into it. Um, Chris, Jason, Patrick Doherty, Brandon Funston were just basically taking everybody's money. Tom Everett Scott <laughs> was in it. That was that was nice to get to beat up on him a little bit from time to time, but. Yeah. That was a good keeper league with a salary cap from year to year. It really kept us on our, on our toes. I think it elevated the amount of skill required to really do well. And, and yeah. that's what we probably would like to see more leagues do moving forward. And a quick sidebar here during the 2019 season, I remember my team being out of the running, shopping Michael Thomas, looking for a cheap wide receiver with some keeper upside. And we had some pretty good negotiations. You were pushing Hollywood Brown pretty hard. I ended up declining and getting DK Metcalf. Remember you telling me I was probably wrong to do it. Um, that's probably the best trade that I ever made that never got to see played out because the league, league wasn't died. renewed for 2020. Yeah. So Wilson league. no longer lives, nor does Wilson. my DK Metcalf trade. Wilson lives, died. Yeah, it died. It died honestly because of the, you know, we just, it was hard to get everybody really motivated for during the pandemic. I mean, it really was, it was sort of everybody's fun other league and, and it was hard to get everybody like on the same page and we just kind of gave up. It was, I mean, you know, this, this is the one million and first thing that's important about the pandemic, but it was a hard sell this past year. It really was. It was a hard sell to care about something as intensely as some people care about fantasy. And they care about it a lot more than I do. And I freaking do it for a living, but, um, it, it it really was and and it, and rightly so like i understand why people had a lot of hesitation and maybe one nice thing will you know hopefully we can get some semblance of normalcy back where we all kind of feel that same excitement when august comes and you just go oh this is so fun i get to like hang out with my friends and do the stupid fantasy draft and like pretend it really matters and get mad and stuff it's just a fun sandbox to play around in that didn't feel that fun for us to do that league last year for sure but anyway, uh, long, other, other rules. Uh, yeah, I would say don't do PPR. It's, it's gone way too far the other way. Half point per reception, or frankly, I don't know how you feel about it, Matt, but I'm okay with no points per reception. I, with the way the NFL, I understand where PPR came from in the days of Ladanian Tomlinson, ya boy. Uh, like I, I understand that people were trying to vary who could win in a fantasy league. And if you didn't get priest homes, you weren't going to win. But with the way the NFL is now, if the NFL had been the way it is now always, do you think PPR ever would have turned into a thing? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I think selfishly, I might at times lean that way if I know I'm playing against people who are used to full PPR, just knowing how to work the settings in my favor. But really, if you just want the truest outcome, probably nothing. Half at most. I kind of feel, I kind of feel the same way. I kind of feel like given where we are, where there just aren't a lot of running backs who are the locus of points the way they used to be, where you'd, you really felt like you needed to balance out with superstar. Well, hell, even without PPR, Devontae Adams was dominant this year. Two years ago, Michael, Michael Thomas was dominant. There was no argument that said they weren't top half of the first round picks the way they performed that year. That was the whole thing you were trying to get away from by inventing PPR in the first place. Um, I'm very against full point perception, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn. I kind of think maybe, I mean, I really don't think PPR would have, would exist if, if football had always been the way it is now. Yeah. I think when you can look at it that way, then there's all the reason in the world just to move on unless everybody is just afraid of change or a common argument is that people simply like to be in leagues where there are a lot of points. They'd rather win 
150 to 140 oh, instead of 95 to 90, even if it could be the same degree of skill and dominance. So that's something to wrestle with in a lot of leagues. But for a truer outcome, I think getting rid of the full PPR would be a big step right. forward for a lot of leagues. And, I mean, I think the the whole uh, – I'm a commissioner of a couple leagues, and the, and the whole goal that I always have is try to create incentives for – uh, varied strategies, you know, so that everybody doesn't understand that the key to winning this league is always take eight receivers or to always take five running backs in the first five rounds or, in other words, multiple paths to victory. I mean, regular guest on my uh, my show is Scott Fish, and he has the fishbowl every year, uh, a huge giant contest that, you know, almost everybody in the industry plays in and then lots of fans also play in. And he invents new rules, new scoring rules for the fishbowl every single year because he's trying to come, he's trying to come up with that true, wow, I could legitimately take one of four different positions with my first round pick. I could definitely justify taking three quarterbacks in a row. I could justify not taking a quarterback until round 10. He, he's trying to really mess around, uh, by doubling the value of tight end receptions, by, uh, Having quarterback incompletions be negatives, uh, so that you're actually uh, trying to reward sk- the actual skill of the player as opposed to volume for a player. Like there, you know, the biggest overriding advice would be uh, have fun, play around. Maybe you don't even feel that you have to be committed to your scoring format the first year you do it. Maybe if it's a dynasty league, you kind of do, but if it's a redraft league, you don't. And and almost look at your draft and and means test it and see, see did we have an obvious only one way to win or do we create kind of a cool multiple snakes to to find the winning path? Yeah. One more thing I'd add about settings from a personal standpoint. I love leagues with no defense or no kicker. Maybe it's the better in me, but trying to reduce variance is often the goal without eliminating true paths to victory or the fun involved. I know a lot of people, again, get hung up on wanting to see a lot of points. So they want a defense and a kicker because it jacks up point totals. But if it's going to take the same degree of skill to win, I would rather knock out that randomness and have the average score to win a week, maybe be in the 90s instead of well into the triple digits. I don't understand that whole thing that I do here all the time. Like, oh, the reason we do it is just because we want it to have a lot of points. And and when you're adding randomness to create a lot of points, you're you're taking away the skill that it requires to win. I don't I don't play in a single league that has kickers anymore. And I only play in one league large that has team defenses, and I've tried to get rid of it, and I may unilaterally get rid of it at some point. Um, after these past couple of years, and certainly after this year, wow, who are the people out there screaming for team defenses? Holy moly. It's The league doesn't have any defensive value anymore in terms of stats. The only thing you ever really have a differentiating uh, result on in any given week is you looked into a fumble six, you looked into a kick return, you looked into, which isn't repeatable, which won't be a reason that you win your league. It'll just as likely bite you as not bite you. There was no skill in coming up with the dude who accidentally like fell on the ball in the end zone. Um, yeah, I just don't think it's the league anymore, at least not right now. Yeah, I think there are a lot of leagues where some people might want to keep some degree of variance because if there's a buy-in and somebody knows that maybe they're not the most experienced player in the league, um, Wilson Lives might not be the best example for me because those settings did cut out a lot of variance and I knew I wasn't the most skilled manager there. But <laughs> if we want to keep people involved, I get it. If you're setting up a league with some coworkers and some casual fans and they just feel like they have a chance if there's the added variance of certain settings, fine. But 
at least being mindful of that balance and not just mindlessly saying, oh, the standard league is one quarterback and it's full PPR and we do kickers and defenses. Just whatever decision you make, make it for a reason. And if that's a conscious decision, then I think it's going to make for a much better league, especially if the mindset is open to change in the long run as we get more information year over year. It's fine in theory, but in practice, there's already so much freaking variance. The idea that some person has a magic key to, to always win a fantasy league is just flat nut, right? We, 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 we're, we're pretty experienced players, you and I. And we don't win every league we're in. Heaven knows we don't. Like, of course I don't. No way. There's some leagues where I, some years where I do pretty well, but some leagues, some years where I don't. And that's, I don't think I got worse as a player. I just lucked into some bad injuries. I lucked into some, didn't get the, the, the red hot dude who turned into something that we, nobody expected. There's already so much variance. It's already, even if you took out kickers and defense, it's like 50% luck. I don't need more luck. Yeah, and I think it's important to have the mindset of not just always seeing where you got unlucky, but realizing where you get lucky when it comes to right. variance. Because I was in a league this year where um, my college buddy Eric just had a juggernaut of a team, and I was playing him in the championship, and I had Alvin Kamara and Miles Gaskin. So guess what? I won. You won. He still somehow <laughs> made it a sweat with a stack of bills going on Monday night to wrap up the week. But um, my team was not better than his. It was reflected in season-long scoring, season-long record. But when one week I got, what, I think eight touchdowns between those two players, like, thank you, <laughs> Alvin Kamara, but that doesn't mean I had the better team. So, yes, sometimes we get negative variants, but sometimes it works in our favor, too, and it's important to acknowledge both ends of that equation. Yeah, just, I think it's all, the entire pursuit is already so random. Like, you and I sometimes play poker, Poker's pretty freaking random. The best, quote unquote, best player. I mean, we have poker pros who play with us. I don't know if you knew that, but there are at least two poker pros who sometimes play in that game that online that we sometimes play in. That you, you haven't played as much lately because you're a bad person, but just generally speaking. I won the first one, just went out on top. And now that I know some <laughs> pros play, good luck getting me back. But, uh, like, they don't win every time. In fact, they don't win most of the time because there are other people who are also good players, but also just there's, if you don't get cards at the right time in car, in poker, you're not going to win. So should we be adding an extra card to each hand where everybody gets one extra card? And if you happen to get the ace of spades as, you know, everybody shows their extra card after the hand's over. And if someone has the ace of spades, then. Forget all the rest of it. That guy wins the hand. Like that, that's what kickers and defenses feel like to me. Just, I would want to remove as, I would want to make it as much about skill as I could, realizing that there's no way to do that and that people who aren't the best, quote unquote, in their leagues win more often than not. Yeah. I love that point. I think it's a very good parallel. And in a moment, I'll transition into some specific players looking back on the 2020 season and what we can apply moving forward. But really quickly, one more high-level question, what's one simple thing you think most people could do to get better at fantasy football? <laughs> well, that's such an easy question. Let's just skip it because it's so easy. Um, <laughs> can be more than one. I would say probably the best I could offer is listen to the Harris Football Podcast Monday through Friday. I'm just being a jerk. Um, watch as much watch as much as you can. I don't know. I don't know. Like – it's probably all the things that we've talked about. Click discipline. Don't overreact to the news. Don't overreact to situations. Try in whatever process you can 
to figure out who you think the actual best players are and try to have as many of them as you can on your team, whether that's listening to me or watching yourself or whatever, and then play arbitrage. I, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe the, maybe the, I'm talking myself into the answer. Like anytime that you're sure that something is an overreaction, you're never sure. Every time you suspect that something is an overreaction, uh, Joe Mixon is terrible at football two years ago, right? A month's worth of Joe Mixon not being good. And everybody decided he was terrible. Look for buying and selling opportunities based on what you think is incorrect, an, a, a massive overreaction. You're not always going to be right. Um, sometimes you're going to try to convince some poor schmuck that Hollywood Brown's a better option than DK Metcalf. But, uh, <laughs> but I, but I think, you know, maybe zigging when everybody else zags as much as you can. Sounds good. And looking back on the 2020 season, having watched every play of every game, you brought up the point earlier, it was a tough season at times to get too excited about. A lot of people might not have paid as much attention as they typically would. Um, were there any storylines that really interested you or any lessons you learned by watching everything that you think might have changed your perspective a little bit as you look ahead to forming your approach for 2021? No, what's great about me is I'm always right, so I don't need to change ever need to change anything. Um, no, I don't know. Not really. Like we're talking on individual players, of course, but if we're talking sort of meta, meta lessons about evaluating in the league, I don't think anything came up where I'm like, ah, I now need to view this running back phenomenon totally differently. The good thing, if you're going to, if you're going to be deluded like I am and convince yourself that you can do a decent enough job at deciding who the good players are, that rubric is always going to work. You know, you're always going to believe in it. It's not like something's going to happen. You're just going to go, I guess I got that. I guess I got my evaluation on that guy wrong or else I still don't believe it, but he sure did perform well. And I got to kind of come to grips with that idea, but you know, it's a fairly flexible system when, when you're really not trying to learn lessons like, Oh, you know, never, Look at a Bruce Arians team and think they can't do X or Anthony Lynn, not capable of Y. You know, I'm, I'm never going to draw those kinds of conclusions. So it's, so I don't think there's any big meta stuff that came out of the season that's really different. In a moment, I'll get into some interesting players, maybe just standouts or interesting names moving forward by position. But sure. before I mention some names, was there a favorite player or maybe a few players who really <laughs> popped when you watched film that you really looked forward to checking out, even though it was a grind most of the time? I think I literally said, don't ask me that question. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, man. I don't have favorites. I watch them all. I don't, when you watch them all, you don't really have to, you don't have to rank them. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't really have favorites. I, that's the thing. Like I get asked all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm busting your chops. I like, I get asked all the time. Like, believe me, if it, if I, if I wouldn't have said that if we weren't, if I didn't know you before we started the show, um, I just don't know. I just don't, like, I don't, I don't, it's such a grind and I'm already watching everybody anyway that I'll go, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't rank them. I don't go, oh, that guy's my favorite guy. Like, I just don't think of it that way. Ask me about players. Yeah. And to, so to, I guess, give some context behind that question, I thought of somebody like, um, not the best example this year because he didn't play a ton, but Kenny Galladay a couple years ago, you seemed early to that party. You were much higher than the market, not intentionally, but you were much higher than the market on Aaron Rodgers, and that worked out great. I remember 
having the option right. to draft him or Matthew Stafford in the 11th round, and that worked out pretty well. So right. um, maybe not just a favorite player you look forward to watching, but knowing that you're more or less out on a limb, you do flag players before every season. Is there some level of rooting interest? Because, of course, you'd rather be right, or do you just try to tune that out and put up blinders when you're watching film to remain as objective as possible? No, I'm I'm not a saint. I would like to be right. <laughs> uh but you know this year this year was for flag players a lot of guys got hurt. I mean Cortland Sutton was my number 1 mm. and he didn't last very long so it was tough to but and and like Devin Singletary was on that list that was a pretty huge bummer um I think I still think Devin Singletary is better than we've seen and and it's much more about what the Bills found themselves incapable of doing aka run the ball but you know I had um uh, I had Josh Jacobs on that list. I had Adam Thielen on that list. That worked out pretty well. Um, I had Terry McLaurin on that list. Deontay Johnson, once he got healthy, was pretty good. Uh, Robert Woods came at a pretty good discount. I like that. Uh, Daryl Henderson looked really smart for the first half of the year, and then that didn't last very long. Uh, I'd say flag-wise, it was fine. But I, but I also, when I'm coming up with players who are are like the signature players for me this year. It's it's really never about like emotion. It's never about I'm really rooting for that guy. I just like him. It's that I've done my evaluation of everybody and I've come up with a, a an order in which I think I would take them and then I wind up looking up at the at the market and I go, "Whoa. I'm mostly just identifying guys that it seems like I'm way out of step on." And you're right. I'm 100% rooting for me to be right when, you know, it'd be nice if if Cortland Sutton had lasted more than a game and had performed great because it would have made me feel smart. But uh, it still, it really is that rooting, I, I guess, in a super selfish way, but um, it isn't so much like he's my favorite. Sure. Well, sticking with individual players and moving on to some interesting names by position, somebody we've already touched on and somebody who got traded today, Carson Wentz. He went from the MVP front runner in 2017 prior to injury to throwing the most interceptions in the league this season took the second most sacks despite missing the last four plus games so this is an interesting exercise in trying to isolate his skill because it's pretty much impossible to say it was x percent coaching I know a big storyline in the echo chamber as you like to call it would be his reunion with Eagles former Eagles OC Frank Reich Um, how much of it was coaching how much of it much of it was an injury plague supporting cast and how much was truly his ability. When you look at Carson Wentz going to the Colts, what do you think his true talent level would indicate we can expect moving forward? I think it's going to be good. I think it was a really good trade. Um, I'm a believer much more in positive Carson Wentz than in negative Carson Wentz. And I just don't, again, I don't think numbers can capture what a freaking disaster that Eagles offense was both because they made bad investments and bad draft picks, but also because everybody got hurt. The entire offensive line was hurt. All the receivers were hurt. Uh, it's, it's like, you've heard me say this before. Like it, we, we start every sentence all season long with Carson Wentz. The, the first sentence is always, well, it's really tough to know because everybody's hurt, but he led the league in interceptions, but he got sacked a bunch, but I saw that one play on Monday night's football. We made a stupid throw. And I just, I don't think you can divorce either of the last two seasons from how, first of all, two years ago was incredibly injured and somehow they got more injured last year. Uh, and then also, uh, I, I, you know, he himself tried to do too much, 
through balls. He got more and more frustrated, got more and more like, okay, I'm not going to take a sec. I'm going to throw the ball. I'm going to throw the ball and he'd get picked. I just, I don't know how to quantify that in a way that shows up in a number. Um, it's fine if you want to tell me if Patrick Mahomes had been the Eagles quarterback, they would have won a bunch more games and made the playoffs and because he's much more mobile and a magician and even Jalen Hurts coming in and injecting some energy into that team. He absolutely did. He would be able to get away from those moments when Wentz couldn't and would take a sack or make a stupid throw. Uh, and that's probably good that he can be a better quarterback for a bad team. Great. But I don't know that that means he's a better quarterback for a good team. Um, I'm very positive on it. Wentz, uh, so I have no idea what the market's going to decide. I, because like you said, there's an indicating factor that says, oh, Frank Reich, then it's all going to work out fine. But there's also the, he led the league in interceptions and he's terrible. Now, now I know for sure he's terrible. I don't know where the market's going to land for fantasy purposes, but I won't be shocked if I wound up being higher on him than the market. And moving on from once to the presumptive Eagles starter moving ahead, you touched on Jalen Hurts. What are your thoughts on him based on 2020 film? I know it was pretty limited, but how much do you think it could tell us about his prospects for 2021? Well, so for fantasy, he he has the cheat code. You know, it's just he he's a runner. He's not like a Kyler Murray runner. He's not a total burner, but he's very agile, very mobile. He's going to give fantasy points. You know, there's speculation already. Oh, he's going to be a top 10 fantasy draft pick. I don't think he's going to be. I think that's hyperbole. We're all going to get down to it and realize there's a lot of guys who are, have better prospects. Uh, who are you taking, Tom Brady or Jalen Hurts? Gosh, I've got to go Brady. I think that, um, right. Me too. he's just, he's just too good. And Hurts can be very appealing. He's going to run for a lot more yards and a lot more touchdowns, but when you've got Brady, and the way he showed he could assimilate within that offense, especially as the season progressed, again, a narrative, how much of it was the late season buy and them getting their timing right. But even if Godwin's gone, there's so much there. Right. So, like, I just don't see how there's a world where Jalen Hurts can go that high. But um, but I still think he's good for fantasy. Like, if we're talking for gambling purposes, for NFL purposes – I think there's just, it's an incomplete. I don't want to say I've seen three games of Jalen Hurts and therefore I know maybe like actually it was like as a fraction of a game because I believe he may have gotten pulled in one of one in that last one. Um, like I, I don't know for sure that he's not going to be able to do the things that people doubted he could do when he was coming into the league. Maybe they were wrong, but I didn't see Russell Wilson's first few games from Jalen Hurts. Uh, maybe, maybe that's lurking in him. Um, if you, if you, if you were starting a team right now and you gave me a choice between Wentz and Hertz, I would take Wentz. Got it. One more quarterback to throw your way, partially because I am a Chargers fan and partially because he was a revelation compared to any reasonable expectations. What did you think watching every snap that Justin Herbert took in 2020? Thought he was great. I think you know I was really early to tell people he was great. People were nationally fawning all over Joe Burrow because he put up a couple of big numbers. He had like a 400-yard game in a losing effort against the Browns that people were all souped up about. And I was saying, you're missing the boat. You got the wrong guy. The other guy is better, or at least this year. Um, and then eventually people came around and Burrow got hurt. But um, immediately obvious how mobile and how aggressive and how – uh, yeah, he's just kind of, he's kind of everything you want. And he did it with just no, you know, like no experience, like no running a pro style offense. No, I, like it came absolutely out of nowhere. I didn't, I, I thought it was a bad pick. 
I remember thinking it was a bad pick. Like, you're really going to take a guy this side? This was like a Daniel Jones type pick to me. And immediately I was like, oh, that was wrong. I was wrong about that. Um, there, there's something that says uh, he made some really awful, terrible, dreadful mistakes in close games in key positions, as you are painfully aware. But it's just the kind of thing that I think sheer talent eventually you your brain catches up and you stop doing that and plus the hopefully the chargers find themselves in or hopefully for you hopefully for him they find themselves in just fewer dumb games against terrible broncos teams where they're three touchdowns down or they're you know they're blowing 28 point leads or whatever uh where he can just be a little more even killed but you know the thing that josh allen has become it's like holy crap did this kid come into the league already being able to do the thing that josh allen just be, become because they look a lot, a lot alike. Yeah, it's tempting to get carried away thinking about Herbert with plenty of time left on a rookie deal. Hopefully, an upgraded head coach, but that's going to take some time before any real judgments, I think, would be in order. But man, with the talent on that team, Herbert aside, it's it's tempting to get carried away. But then again, I've been a Chargers fan long enough. I think we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> So we can move on to a different position. Looking at running backs, a new teammate of Carson Wentz, Jonathan Taylor. I know that we never want to cheer for injury, but I thought Taylor's stock went through the roof when Marlon Mack tore his Achilles in week one. And then it took Taylor a while to get going before he did have some big games down the stretch. So between, at least from a box score standpoint, some unimpressive output early on and then some monstrous output near the end of the season, how good do you think Taylor actually is? I don't think he's among the best in the league. It's not like I think he's Saquon Barkley. I I think he was being like you don't even understand how my Twitter feed looked Jonathan Taylor wise in in October. Holy crap, people hate him. He's just bad. At, don't you understand Harris? He's just bad at football. He's just terrible. And I did I did like a a big on the YouTube channel I did a big breakdown of his film and I said you're wrong, he's not terrible, but there are some things to be concerned about. That's fair. And to be honest, those things didn't go away just because the Colts started giving it to him 26 times, right? Uh, so I, that's, that's part of hopefully who I am when I'm doing this analysis, which is never get too high or too low based on the actual stat results. Try to actually watch them and say, well, okay, but did he really have anywhere to go? Was there a move there to be made? Um, the common con- complaint about Taylor coming out of college was, Okay, yes, good top end speed when he, when he gets going, but not really going to make shake anybody, not going to make anybody miss. And so in the NFL, how how in the open is he ever, ever going to get? And I think you'll remember for two months, it wasn't at all. He was never making anybody miss. He was never getting to the second level at full speed. It was a lot of, wow, okay, that was a four-yard carry, and that would be the best he would do behind what was supposed to be an all-world offensive line. I think to some degree what – some people, what we learned about the Colts last year is the offensive line wasn't that great. It just, it turned into an okay offensive line. It got really banged up. Uh, Quentin Nelson alone wasn't enough. They, they lost other guys. They lost Costanzo at one point. Um, so I'm positive. I'm positive on him. But if people are going to try to sell him to me as a first round pick, I'm probably going to balk. Like there's, there's going to be, Interesting reckonings on on the way some seasons ended on some players that I'm not that psyched about. Like he went crazy at the end. David Montgomery went crazy at the end, and people are are maybe going to chase over people who I think are better players. And their justification is going to be, well, look at the workload. Of course they're just going to give it to him again. 
And that's my whole point is that year to year, that stuff just changes so much. It's almost as if we're, I'm sharing my screen and you're looking at my outline because David Montgomery was the other running back I wanted to touch oh. on. I know he was a stat sheet superhero. Um, you kind of alluded to it with what he did at the end of the season and how we should put that in perspective moving forward. But on a season-long basis, including the hot finish and, and everything, what did the film say to you about his talent? Yeah, I like Jonathan Taylor a lot more than I like David Montgomery. I think David Montgomery is, I call them Ham and Eggers, you know, just he's a, he's okay. Um, a Jordan Howard type. Just if you're going to give them a ball, the ball a lot, there are going to be times where he breaks into the clear and looks like, looks like a world beater. But you're, if you want your offense to be functional, you probably shouldn't give him the ball a lot. There, there were a couple of years there where people were trying to tell me that Jordan Howard was the sixth best running back in the NFL. And I would watch him play and I would go, guys, I just don't see it. I just don't think he's, I don't think he, I think David Montgomery has the problem of poor vision and poor acceleration, but who am I? <laughs> like, I just, I don't think he's a special player. And I think people are going to look at the stats and really overdraft him. I, I don't have ranks yet, but I wouldn't take him anywhere near where he's going to go. Um, he had success at the end of the year. I can't, he, can't, he won people his fan, their fantasy leagues at the end of the year. No question about it. He went crazy. What did he finish? RB6 or something? Like, he, wild. Wild that this dude we were mocking during Monday night games because he ran like he had a piano on his back. Like, even the, the blurbers at Roto World who often are very perceptive, but often aren't, <laughs> they would, they would look at the stat line and they would look at the game and they would go, okay, he had a bad game, so it's okay for me to, to yell at him. And they would yell at him by saying, can anybody believe, can anybody believe how slow this guy looks when he tries to get going? And then he has a hundred, you know, 24 carries for 124 yards and a long touchdown and then they go, it's great! Right? And I think our challenge is to, is to say, like, a, a 56 yard run that makes your overall yards per carry look good or your overall stat line look good, is it repeatable? And I'll say in the case of Jonathan Taylor, I feel like it's pretty repeatable. In the case of David Montgomery, I don't. Yeah, I'm sensing a bit of a Casablanca parallel here, if you'll give me a sec. Claude Rains' character, he says his allegiance blows with the wind. That sounds like a lot of the David Montgomery fanatics right now. And at the same time, you've got Humphrey Bogart on the other side saying, I stick my neck out for no one. And we want to be aware of what's going on and what people's true talent level is. And we can't be, to your point, we can't completely divorce situation or stats from how we perceive the true talent. But it's really easy to get overly excited about something that happened recently or something that might be an outlier performance that may not hold predictive value moving forward. Pretty easy to just say, don't draft Dave Montgomery. I'm okay. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm okay. I'm absolutely okay. If I miss out on a 1600 yard, 10 touchdown season from Dave Montgomery, I'll take my lumps, but I'm okay. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Somebody I think you're going to be a little bit higher on different position, moving on to wide receiver. Wanted to touch on Calvin Ridley. We know that Julio's at the top of the food chain when he plays for the Falcons, but how much do you think Ridley closed that gap this past season? He's not the same kind of player as Julio. He's not physically dominant the way Julio is. Um, and he's really, I don't, I still don't think he's as fast as Julio is. He's a really good route runner and I thought he had a better year this year. This was the best I've seen him play this year. Um, I'm, I'm positive on him. Um, 
I want to know what they're doing at quarterback in Atlanta. It matters. Situation matters. I'd like to know if it's, if it's status quo and it's still Matt Ryan. Okay. I have a sense they might draft a quarterback because they're picking awfully high. And if they try to draft Justin Fields or somebody who's going to be the heir apparent, what does that mean for Ryan? Does that mean the guy sits for a year in it and, and we get some midseason change that could be not, not awesome? Um, there, there are a lot of shoes to drop, I think, in Atlanta and Julio himself. I don't think it's a total fate accompli that he's back. He probably is, but we'll see. But yes, I think uh based on based on talent, uh I am very pro Ridley now. Maybe I was a little behind on Ridley a couple years ago. I I felt like we were anointing him before he really looked like a a true game wrecker on film and maybe he's never going to be like a real game wrecker. He's not that guy. He he doesn't really run away from you and you know, if you like, he's he's physical, but not like Julio physical. If you bump him, you can get him off his route a little bit. But he does have that thing where, if the, when the ball's in the air, even if there are two defenders around him, you kind of just trust that he's going to go get it. That he's got, you know, he's he's had drop problems in the past, but I think he does have good hands and and just body control and uh, like oh, oh, oh maybe he's not a Hall of Fame player, and Julio is a Hall of Fame player, but like a worthy inheritor such as it is yeah and speaking of somebody who can go get it when a quarterback puts the ball up in the air also wanted to touch on justin jefferson extremely impressive rookie season was the film as kind as the stats for him it was he's a monster yeah he's a monster he you know he doesn't have the burning speed but he's but he came into the league like oh the best he's ever going to be is like Slot, slow receiver. He'll max out at Keenan Allen. And now we look and go, Keenan Allen wishes. <laughs> as much as we love Keenan Allen. And I mean, back to ESPN days, I've been trying to get people to realize how good a route runner Keenan Allen is. But Jefferson came into the league running these routes. He's not at Keenan Allen level probably in terms of route running, but he was, you know, by midseason making guys fall down. Uh, defenders, world class athletes look silly trying to cover him. And he can play the outside. He mostly played on the outside. Uh, he's super, super special. Like I, I can't say he's a first round draft pick because that's for fantasy. That's a pretty high bar, but I'm not going to be shocked if he's a second or, or a third. Like I'm, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. I had the fortune initially of drafting him in the last round of a league this past season. I wanted Michael Hardman and he got swiped. So I just took Jefferson as a flyer couple weeks in, decided to drop Jefferson, and then he blew up and never had a chance to get him back, of course. But he's definitely one to watch moving forward. And one player, uh, moving on to the last position that should be in any league, tight end, wanted to touch on Robert Tanyan. I know he Mm -hmm. was a league winner in a lot of cases this past season, but 11 touchdowns on less than 600 receiving yards raises some red flags. So based on his specific skill set, not getting too married to the stats, but when you watch him on film – do you think that proclivity for touchdowns would be sustainable? No, not like that. I don't think he's Mercedes Lewis from that year with the Jags whenever that was 10 years ago. I'm dating myself. Uh, I don't think it's like a – he's not a useless player. He's not like just a big dude catching one-yard touchdowns at the goal line. But there's a lot of circumstantial reasons why Tanya needed to be scoring so many touchdowns. And, you know, he's essentially the number two receiver for a team that just could not find one. And if they – finally do give Aaron Rodgers a second receiver, then I think Tunyon suffers. And that's some situational analysis. It, it matters, right? Because we care about how good the players are on their team. And we, we know that Marquez Valdez-Scantling stinks. And we know that 
Equinemius St. Brown stinks. Like we, we are aware that they can't find anyone else. Alan Lazard has some fans, but I don't think Aaron Rodgers is one of them anymore. Um, and I'll say no. He is Tunyon like real fast? No. Is he running crazy routes? No. Is he incredibly strong and just in, super difficult relative to other tight ends to bring down? Not really. He's been kind of right place, right time, schemed open and made some plays. I, I don't know. I kind of think that the world knows that. I kind of think that I'm a terrible predictor of what the market is going to do for fantasy. I, I'm always wrong, but my feeling is like, if you're really going to call him tight end three or four, you deserve what you get. You know, you, you, you deserve the Hayden Hurst knuckle sandwich. Uh, but if you're going to call him like the tight end stinks, it's a terrible position. So if you're going to tell him, call him six, seven, eight, I'm not probably not going to be argue with you because I can't tell any of them apart anyway. There's only a couple that really differentiate themselves. Got it. Yeah. One more player to circle back to quarterback, but we don't know what team this guy's going to play for yet in 2021. That would be Deshaun Watson, the subject of rampant speculation this offseason. Yeah. Um, we know how good he is as a player, but I'm wondering if you could foresee any substantial change in how you view him and how you'd project him for 2021 based on the landing spot. Again, we know that it's so tough to predict situation, but it does right. matter. So based on, at this point, just pure rumors that we're hearing, um, how are you prepared to potentially adjust, if at all, for Deshaun Watson in 2021? When it's somebody who's such an elite player, I'm gonna, my goal is gonna be not to think about him any differently at all because how much worse could it be than the Texans were last year? Like, he goes to the Jets, let's say. I, I don't know. I mean, they'll, someone will catch the ball. <laughs> they'll find, it'll probably be a little worse, but I don't know. I'll, I'll love it. If, if, if he goes to the Jets and he is being drafted as QB7 because people are paranoid about the Jets stink and who's the, who's the receiver and whatever. I'm gonna love it. I'm gonna want to swoop him up because I just think he'll he makes other. Play- he's him being an amazing player, him being the play. You know, the, the market is so crazy. The, his it wasn't his rookie year, right? His second year that he got hurt was it his rookie year? No, his rookie year that he got hurt, right? Towards ACL. I can't recall. I, I know. I think it was. Think very it was. Early. Yeah, I think it was, and people were crazy for him. And I was like, well, you know, it's just not it's not there yet, but. Finally, you know, it's, it's, it's a hundred percent there. He's masterful, both with mobility. He's great. Like he doesn't need to run, but he can always get you some short rushing touchdowns, but just keeping plays alive that he has no business keeping them alive and still having that thing that the best ones do, which is just to know where everybody, it's the Mahomes thing, right? Mahomes has got it trademarked, but he's pretty good at it too, of just knowing where everybody's supposed to be and somehow pulling a play out of his, out of his tuchus. I don't think that's going to go away someplace else. So I'll view him any depression based on situation that comes up for Deshaun Watson. I'm going to view him hopefully as something of a, like a buy. I don't know if it's a buy low, but like a, maybe a little bit of a value. Um, like if you go, you know, there's a lot of speculation about Denver and then you go, Oh boy, lots of weapons. And I go, sure. It's just that every team can, find fast guys to get to run around and be weapons. And the quarterback is really the one that makes the huge difference. Um, so I'll just, I think I just love the guy. Yeah. Well, I think your point of, you know, a possible buy low or value, it might sound silly for somebody of his caliber, but yeah, if he's getting priced like a QB six or seven, then that probably would qualify as value. And I'll use that as a transition to get into some, you know, betting games beyond the fantasy football side of things. Because sure. similarly, 
you could have, you know, the best team in the league could possibly still be underrated and the worst team in the league could be overrated. It, it's just all relative to what the market is pricing either players in fantasy football or teams and, you know, point spread type of betting. It's all relative sure. to a number. And I know that you bet most, if not all games, even if it's a nominal amount and the wager size can vary, but it's a good way to stay sharp with things and make sure you're learning something from every game. How would you describe your approach as a better when it comes to looking at point spreads? Um, this year, not great. I've, I probably broke, broke even ish this year. It was, it was a eh year. Usually it's a little better. Uh, I, I, this year I didn't feel like I had a great handle all the way through. It felt like I kept, I had a few teams. I it seemed like I was right valuing relative to the market, but a few I just couldn't get right. And I kept being sort of schnookered by them, but I, I'm, I'm usually, I mean, I've, I've told you this many times privately, like I will look at a slate and I'll try to myself come up with what I think the spread should be, but I'm doing it much more qualitatively than quantitatively. So I'm not weighing the 17 stat factors in a spreadsheet and going, aha, this should be a 6.2 point spread, which many, many people do, uh, and then become convinced that their model is perfect because it's a short sample size. And therefore, if they have one good winning season, they... They think they've got it. They think I've got it cracked. And then the next week it doesn't, then the next season doesn't work. And they go, Oh, well, we had to adjust our model this year because it wasn't churning out good results. And then I go, well, then it's not really a model, is it? <laughs> You're just sort of changing it to fit the, fit the results. But there are lots of very successful handicappers who are able to do that year after year. No question about it. I'm not one of them in terms of modeling stats, mostly because I don't have the time, but also because I'm somewhat skeptical that I would be, I, at least I would be able to do it. And I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of people who claim they can do it, even though probably, you know, some people who have been able to and, um, they, and we're not skeptical about them. So my assigning of a point spread for some random Colts Broncos game is ha- feeling like I've got a sense of what those teams are from having watched them and think about where would I put the line. And then I'll usually bet off of that. If, it, if, you know, if I'm wrong one way, if I'm wrong, wrong the other, that's usually where I I place a wager and it's obviously not foolproof. I mean, I I do up, up until this year, you know, I I had three straight years of high 50% and feeling like I've got this thing licked. And then this year was below 50%. But just like you said, I have some games that I'll, I'll put a little more on and I did better on those uh, Freudian slip moron uh, where, you know, it just, the money kind of wound up being about even, but it was a much rougher year. And there, you know, I think the my pressure. You're closer to a lot of pro handicap, closer than I am to a lot of pro handicappers. But my feeling is because you had a less good year, shouldn't be a reason that you abandon the way you've thought about it. You know, you should kind of hopefully, if the way you've thought about it has worked in the long term, that's really what you're looking for. Yeah, I think it's important there to embrace the variance tied to all this and. I guess in a way circling back to a player evaluation angle that we might apply toward fantasy. I remember being lower on the bills than a lot of people before the season because I was not sold on Josh Allen's accuracy. I remember betting on the Seahawks to cover in Buffalo. I remember betting the Chargers to cover in Buffalo, which would have happened if Anthony Lynn hadn't happened to be on the (laughs) sidelines. But um, at the same time, really what I had to realize is I was wrong about Josh Allen. So you know that 
you might lose some bets, but it can be a learning opportunity instead of something to get upset about or, you know, just walk away from something entirely. There's information to be gained from a loss, just like there is with a win. If we go on a hot streak, it doesn't mean suddenly, like you said, two great seasons. It doesn't mean you've got everything figured out. There's something to learn constantly. And in a year like 2020, what's home field going to mean? Um, right. Scoring was a lot higher. I love the shortest touchdown prop under one and a half yards this year. I think a material piece of that prop being mispriced was that opposing teams could communicate with each other just as well as the home team when they're in goal to go situations. That may not be repeatable moving forward, but there are always edges like that we can glean if we're paying enough attention. So I think whether it's betting point spreads or, you know, putting money on the line for a fantasy league or just playing fantasy for fun, you know, watching the actual games, one of the key differentiators for you versus a lot of the other analysts out there, just paying attention to what's actually happening, not simply looking at a box score. Um, it sounds simple, but there can be a lot of value to be had by going through that process. Yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, you're, no one's going to be as psychotic as I, as I am about it unless they're, they're doing this full time, right? The only way to do what I do is to do it full time and probably you could do it better. Maybe some people than I can do if you do it full time, but it's a huge time commitment. And it isn't to say, again, I think, I think, uh, well, uh, let me, let me phrase it as a question. Like, do you think that there are, if, if we're going to be skeptical about using analytics to predict an individual performances, an individual player's performance, I mean, in a season, let alone in a week, uh, do you feel better about using such devices to pick team team related uh, point spread bets? So is the question, would you rather use the best analytics available for an individual player versus a team collectively? Yeah, that's the question. I tend to gravitate toward the biggest possible sample size I can get. So I would go for a team as a whole, knowing a quarterback is way more important than you know, the backup corner who's going to play a few snaps, but um, even a full season in the NFL is a small sample size. So yeah. with that said, anything we can do to get a more significant sample size, I, I would generally lean toward. Again, there could be a crappy metric that you wouldn't want with a bigger sample when you could just look at, I mean, not necessarily something as rudimentary as Josh Allen's completion percentage for a couple games, but but man, you want the biggest sample size you can get to a point you made earlier. It's much more poker than chess. There are so many variables. Every given play, we've got 22 different chess pieces on the field, so to speak. Yeah. And the more information you can get, in most cases, I think, the more predictive that can be versus isolating a single variable. Yeah, I get a kick out of, of people who, uh, I mean, let's, you know, often they are touts who are t saying, this model, this model has done this, this model, you know, I have data, I put it through the shredder, it goes into the Excel spreadsheet, it spits out what the line should be, that's how I know how to do my bets, or that's how I need to do my props, or whatever. And and they're flying high, because it's working out, and it's not, I, I mean, I, I don't think it can't give you an edge, and obviously all we're really ever looking for in handicapping is an edge. A consistent edge makes you money to, at a certain point, but I get a kick out of the ones who then say, okay, it's been six weeks and we aren't doing so well. So I've done some proprietary things to the model to change it, to spit out better results. I've looked at these results and I've changed the model around. And I, I'm always like, there's probably some validity to that. I'm always saying the NFL changes every year. This year, heaven knows there are a bunch of changes. But man, 
you know, I, like you said, I'd much rather build a model on years and years and years of inputs rather than to go, I don't like these six weeks. We're, we tweak the model. We're, you know, like yards per attempt is now a tenth of a factor and as opposed to a twentieth of a factor. It feels like that's the, the, the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. And I think that cuts to the core of what we're trying to do with props and hops. I know that most of the successful betters who can actually make a living doing it don't have a media presence. They don't want to let their edges get out. They're doing just fine, lurking in the shadows, keeping access to their accounts that they can maintain. And then everybody who's just shouting on social media, trying to sell picks probably is not bringing <laughs> a ton of value because if you really are moving numbers, then people can't really follow the plays you're making. And if you're not moving numbers, then how good are you? So there's a tricky dynamic in play, but I think, it's important to realize there are a lot of people out there who know a lot about sports. They're probably increasingly interested in sports betting as legalization sweeps the nation. We're probably going to have to be quite patient in California, but mm. a lot of other states have gotten things rolling pretty well. And it's trying to speak to that person who is maybe early on in the journey and interested in learning how to think like a better, better, so to speak. The, the ones who've got it figured out don't need the media. Uh, the ones who don't have it figured out and are shouting from the rooftops don't provide any value. So there's a middle ground there of, hey, we're, I can't profess to teach anybody how to be a pro better. I'm not a pro better, but I track what I do pretty closely. I pay attention and it's gone quite well for a decade plus at this point. So I think I know some things and I'm interested in building a community and connecting with people who share similar interests. I know with your podcast, you're sharing a lot of edges with people who could potentially use that against you. Or maybe there are people who are in the same <laughs> league that listen to your show and they're using it against each other. But there's also the dynamic of, okay, we're, we're maybe not going to, you know, win everything every time, but we can become better at this together. And it's fun to build that sense of community while moving in the right direction. Sure. I mean, I know you as a better and you don't have a shredder that you're putting numbers into to come out with your I mean yeah. you certainly look at numbers but that's you're not modeling and then especially you're not like tweaking the model when it's when you're not liking the results and deciding oh you know what would have given me a better result this week is if I had just uh completion percentage had been more important to me then therefore next week I'm going to make completion percentage more important like that's that's not how you approach it <laughs> yeah, no, sometimes it's better just to say, you know what, I, I didn't think Josh Allen would take this step forward, and I That's lost right. three bets going against him, so maybe I should pay attention, there could be some signal there. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. okay to be wrong or, or say that you don't know, because at the end of the day, how much do any of us actually know for sure? Indeed. So um, I think that's about it for the football-specific questions. One more I'll throw your way. Being a Patriots fan, I know it's a joke on the Harris Football Podcast, wearing the footy pajamas. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I regret to inform listeners that I do not see any signs of actual footy pajamas <laughs> as we record this right now. But it was interesting to see the Super Bowl ratings were better in Boston than in Tampa Bay. I think that says something. What was it like for you as a Patriots fan, no longer being in Boston, but obviously with a strong rooting interest in New England, to watch Tom Brady go and win a Super Bowl on a different team this year? I mean, I wished he'd been doing it for my team, but I was 100% rooting for him. Uh, I, I think there were some people who just felt betrayed. My mom, like, said, oh, I'm not going to watch. And I'm like, Mom, watch. You love the guy. Well, I don't love him anymore. He betrayed us. I'm like, oh, Mom. <laughs> There's just, you know, you can't, you really can't account for how people emotionally uh, relate to stuff that they don't know. I just don't ever think of it that way. I mean, Tom Brady probably in real life is kind of a weird 
squeamish. I don't know. Like, who knows? I don't know him. I'm not pretending to know him, but he might be a little bit weird and he might have some political beliefs I'm not crazy about. And in the end, I don't know him. So all I'm doing is rooting for the stuff he does on the field. All I ever did was root for the stuff on the field. I didn't feel any deep kinship with him when he played for my team. I felt the same level of not kinship when he played for another team. I just thought he was awesome and wanted to see him win. So I was super, super pro. I was happy how it went. Yeah, I think this was the Super Bowl that I felt the most neutral while watching the game. I wish it were a more competitive game, but if the Chiefs had won, I I would have been really happy for Mahomes. He seems very likable. Andy Reid got the monkey off his back last year, but he's still easy to root for. My best friend is a big Chiefs fan, so there's you know plenty of joy if they come through. But damn, how can you not respect what Brady did with the Bucks and seeing Gronk? It's like the two of them just went back in time. Arians, left which Bulls just put together an excellent game plan for that matchup. And at a certain point, you just have to enjoy excellence when you see it and appreciate it for what it is. And I think that's what we saw on Super Sunday. Yeah, again, I don't worry about who seems like a nice guy because, man, there are a lot of times in history when people who seem like nice guys were not. <laughs> so, sure, he's, I mean, what's likable to me about Patrick Mahomes is these freaking hilariously fun to watch. Just play unbelievably awesomely fun. And so... Agreed. There's no reason I would have been like, boo, Chiefs, boo. But since I have rooted for Brady for a long time and I've kind of become attuned to his particular kind of awesome, that that's what I rooted for. And I definitely, I liked the out- outcome. Yeah. Well, having had the uh, NFC plus three and a half as a Super Bowl futures bet I took when the playoffs kicked off, that was pretty nice. Even though the AFC's top seed got home and it was the five seed out of the NFC, that ticket still had a little bit of value at kickoff and was really not in doubt for much of the game. So at least that made it a fun ride. Yeah. I had, I had a uh, bucks money line. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Nice payout all around. So transitioning a little bit into the writing side of things, we touch on this at the top of the show. You're the author of four novels, topics ranging from detective fiction and football to rock and roll and a dystopian future in some ways, a little bit too eerily accurate with that dystopian future in Tulsa, (laughs) your most recent novel. But how would you describe yourself as a writer? Super pretentious and annoying. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Literary fiction, but I think pretty readable, hopefully. I mean, the goal is for things to be not hard to figure out what's happening. Uh yeah, I, I don't, I never really had a plan to take the writing path that I've taken with the books that I've published. And I've written lots of other things that haven't been published and shouldn't be published. Um, the first novel is called Slotback Rhapsody. And if people are football fans, they might like it because it is about like an undersized running back who tries to make it in the NFL and does make some compromises morally, I guess you'd say. But I think it's pretty funny. Uh, it's kind of a comic novel and, the story behind why I wrote a football novel was that I was writing a baseball novel and I had an agent at the time, Rachel, who said, what are you famous for? And I was like, I'm not famous. And she said, well, what are you kind of famous for? And I said, football. And she said, so why are you writing a baseball novel? So then I said, I'll stop doing that. And I wrote a football novel instead. Um, but honestly, there's no, there hasn't been any really great big plan. Um, Tulsa is the one that came out in 2018 and it's about all the electricity going out. And I guess it's maybe a little bit inspired by The Road, the Cormac McCarthy novel, but not really because it's not 
nearly so dark and it's a little more fully fleshed out with more characters. Whereas that book is really specifically about, you know, the father and the son. It's great. Um, yeah. And as it turned out, when I, in the first three months of Tulsa being out, it sold more copies than all my other three books combined had done to that point. <laughs> and then it turned out I should have been writing apocalypse fiction the whole time because apparently people really, really like it. And it's, I mean, you've read it. It's not really apocalypse. It's, it's just about it. You know, it's not like nuclear has happened or whatever. Just all the electricity doesn't work anymore and it never comes back on and nobody ever really knows why. And, uh, as it turns out, given what 2020 turned into, uh, yikes. Yeah. Um, well, maybe there was some signal in the sales numbers that you saw with Tulsa and what you would write about moving forward to your point. I know you have a fifth novel in the works. What's that Ooh. one about? And when may we plan on seeing that? <laughs> I have no idea, but I am working on it. Uh, it's, it's a, it takes place in 2050 and it's kind of about what life is like in 2050, but it's not really like science fiction. There's some science fiction elements. There's, uh, it's a whole bunch of things in it. It's, there's a, the potential that there's this drug people are taking that that causes you not to be afraid of dying. And there are people who would like it to get out into the world and there are people who very much don't want it to get out in the world and they're they're having kind of behind the scenes battles. Uh there's global warming's real bad, there's uh um people are being put in camps who maybe are, you know, U.S. citizens, but maybe not the most desirable of U.S. citizens. It's, but it's not, I don't know if people are going to read it and be like, yeah, this was dystopian. I don't know. It's like, I'm writing about what life is like. And so it's a lot of people like going and getting fast food, but all the cars are automatic, automated. Like it's, it's sort of a, it's a can't miss, Matt. Obviously, because I can boil it down to 11 sentences. It's a can't miss. The automated cars given they function properly sounds more utopian to me. Being in LA, right. that, that commute would be a dream. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've done a lot of like, I've done a lot of reading of futurist ideas about the future and, and trying to, uh, sl slowly weave in and, and, you know, the whole point is it, the way I'm writing it is not to have the, whoever the narrator is step aside and say, let me tell you about how cars developed over the last 30 years. Right. It's just, they're living their lives and the cars are driving themselves and we kind of have to catch up. Uh, it's not a big part of the book. It's just something that's there. Um, and like uh, Holly, a lot of Hollywood has moved to Montana because of global warming. It's too hot here. So they've started to build studios and stuff in Montana. So, so there's a place in eastern Montana that's called Denzel. It's a town called Denzel uh, in Montana. So, yeah, it's just like I'm, I'm imagining a lot of things. It's, it's not close to – it's long. I'm – Biting off. It's a big swing. I think you would say it's a, I should probably, I don't have a title yet. Maybe I should call it big swing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, or something tied to Denzel. People like him. <laughs> People do like him. Yeah. All right. Well, we can uh, start to head down the home stretch here, wrapping up with some rapid fire questions. I'll sure. refer to these maybe as the four B's, beers, books, beats, and bites. Getting into the beer <laughs> side of things, aside from betting, that's probably the biggest pillar on the show. And I guess here, whether it's beer or not, do you have a favorite libation? Uh, it's not really beer. I'm not a beer guy. You know that. Uh, you set me fine. up. 
Uh, old fashioned. I just, I really like you. I like the old fashioned. Yeah, agreed. One of the things I'm most looking forward to when things are back fully open safely, being back in Vegas, is the old fashioned at the Cosmopolitan Sportsbook of all places. That's my favorite one I've ever had. Uh, The Cosmopolitan's a pretty swanky spot, but, uh, even, even the sportsbook does it properly. So I, I will happily have my next old fashioned indoors in the cosmopolitan with no reservations when the time is right whenever that is not your next one though that just maybe your best one you got to have some in between now and then though they're really good yeah yeah i think you're right that that would be a significant underdog to wait out until the cosmopolitan sportsbook is the location for the next one (laughs) getting into books uh we know you're an accomplished writer also a voracious reader what is your favorite book or in general what do you like to read if that's an easier one to speak to well, so I'm, I'm really only read fiction. I really only read novels. Um, I, I know I hear, I hear, I say that to people and they go, what? Um, because most people don't. I, I just like fiction. It's, it's my outlet into understanding the world, both as a writer and a reader. Um, you know, I did a top 10 novels of all time podcast, like in 2016. And I'm trying to, maybe Jesus's son by Dennis Johnson was number one, but, you know, ranking art is stupid. I, I literally just, uh, read, a uh, reread London Fields by Martin Amos, which I think I just talked about on the podcast yesterday. Um, it's so good. Oh my God. It might be one of the best books ever written. It's so funny. So mean. Uh, if people are interested in what I think about these books, like I've, I'm now more committed to doing good reads, to keeping track of what I read and also writing reviews and then giving updates about what I'm writing and all that stuff. So you can just search me on Goodreads. Uh, and, and I just wrote a thing on, on London Fields, uh, defending my love of it. Nice. And outside of football, it's not just writing and reading that you're passionate about, but also music getting to the beats portion of the four B's. You're a big indie rock fan. Your novel war on sound is a nice ode to rock and roll. Are there any favorite concerts that you've been to in the past and also something that you're looking forward to attending once we have live events back on the table? So for, so War on Sound is a big, big long book. That's like 560 something pages. Uh, and I, and that, that was published in 2016. And for the three or so years that it took to write that book, I went to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. And gave up some of my hearing, probably, uh, and made a lot of friends who wound up, you know, being friends, like, for, for beyond the scope of the book, who are musicians who would talk to me or, you know, let me on the bus and, and, uh, ask them questions or just kind of hang around and see, see what it was like. Uh, it would be hard to go, it would be hard to say that one was amazing. You know, it's almost like watching too much film. Like, I don't have, I don't rank them anymore because it's just been to so, so, so many. So I'll almost go way back to just like a favored memory from probably the 90s. I saw Cracker at Liberty Lunch in Austin, which is long gone. Uh, and the opening act was Counting Crows before they had anything real, before they had like put out a record. And I think, do you remember Mila, Mila Jovovich? You know who she is though. She's an actress. Uh, but she was a singer at first. And I remember she might have been the first opener in that in that concert. And I remember like she was done and then she ran by our standing room row and she stepped on my toe. And I was like, that woman's never going to be in a good movie. I was so (laughs) mad. Um, but that was a really fun show that, that show, um, a couple of my buddies who came to that show with me, we always talk about how 
uh, Cracker was really mad at the, at the, um, monitors. You know, the, they couldn't hear themselves. So they stopped playing a song and they started to pick up the monitors and pat, crowd surf the monitors out into the crowd. And we were passing the monitors like over our, these big stereo cabinets over our heads. Um, and the, the bodyguard, the bodyguards, the security guards came in and like were punching people to get them back or whatever. And then they fin, they finished and it had been a long show. They'd been really good, but they'd never finished Euro Trash Girl, this one eight minute song. And uh, so they turn on the lights and we all turn to leave. And I'm sure all the Liberty Lunch people were like, good, get the hell out of here. And then Cracker came on for like a third encore and said, we never finished this. And they played Euro Trash Girl with the lights on, which is a legendary <laughs> story in my uh, in my group. Yeah, I can't wait till we can get back to those kinds of experiences. Even if things go a little haywire, that just makes them all the more memorable. So hopefully not too far uh, away from that coming back into the fold. But moving on to the fourth and final B. Bites. So 2020 was your first year as a full-time LA resident. I know it was a weird one, but I'd imagine there were some silver linings to being in LA for the whole year, especially with you being a vegetarian. Were there <laughs> You're any... going to be sad with this answer. I haven't had a restaurant meal since March. Okay. So <laughs> I, I would have guessed certainly much more recently, but that said, having spent a lot of time in LA over the past five, six years, um, right. what what restaurants, what culinary experiences in the LA area have stood out in your memory? I don't know, man. I don't really have a lot. I, I mean, something vegan. <laughs> but you, do you talk about something vegan on the show like every week? No, it has not come up once on this show, oh, really? but it's probably something I will be having, um, before too long. So tell, tell, forth. tell the folks about something vegan. Well, my take on it is that I, am not vegan or vegetarian, but I will enjoy the hell out of a well-prepared vegan or vegetarian meal. And few people do it better than them. The portobello fries um, is an appetizer. Fantastic. They have the best Beyond Burger. Pro tip, if anybody in LA goes there, you can get a double Beyond Burger. It's, it's basically a less unhealthy Big Mac slash double double that tastes way better. They give you really good fries with it. Um, they just do things that they do make healthier vegan food as well. I don't want to put them, you know, in the wrong category here, but they offer so much. And I think so many non vegans, it's a popular spot for people who work in the area to go for work lunches. If you're a non vegan and have a hang up about it, that is the place to break that stereotype because the food just tastes so good and you can eat as healthy or as junky as you want, but they kind of bring it all to the table. It's funny because I wouldn't know about it if when I first came to LA, I stayed in Burbank at my friend Eddie's house and it was in delivery range. So I just started or I was trying not to be a, a nuisance of a house guest. They had like a, they had a guest house behind them, like a tiny little room. So I was just ordering food to, to stay out of their hair and I was trying everything in the, that was in the delivery zone. And that was one of them. I'd never even been to the place until you, you and I went. And we've been a couple of times and I've eaten there a lot. Uh, it doesn't deliver downtown, so I don't get it down here, but, um, it's not like a, it's a hole in the wall. It's not a hole. It's not like a, it's just a totally normal looking four booths, mostly a takeout place. It's, you know, it doesn't look like it's anything special, but the food there is really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we went there. I remember you saying, I believe this would have been, Brady's last regular season game with the Patriots when they gave away a to the Dolphins. Buy to the Dolphins. Oh, yeah. and Ryan I was at your house. Yeah. So I think we decompressed by grabbing some something vegan before the second <laughs> wave of games. And it was about a 15-minute drive from my house. And you said, if we had to drive all the way down to San Diego for this, 
I wouldn't hesitate. So and yet, and yet I don't ever get it. Yeah, I don't get I don't get uh, anything delivered right now. I'm still in paranoid mode. So I mean, I can't get that delivered, but I'm not driving out to restaurants either. So yeah, for sure. Well, they're they're still doing their thing. So before too long, it is somewhere in the future. So we can go ahead and start to wrap things up now. I'd like to make sure we can plug everything you're up to. Obviously, the Harris Football Podcast. You can see what Chris sees as well when evaluating players, youtube.com slash Harris Football, Twitter at Harris Football. The offseason, for a lot of us football fans, that means more time for reading, reinforcing those kinds of good habits. And you can check out Chris's novels. I'll include a link in the show notes to an Amazon page with your different novels so people can check that out. Hey, if I missed anything, are you going to do the almanac again this offseason or anything else about what you're up to that we should let the listeners know about? You should all probably uh, tweet to me to make me feel like I'm not by myself all the time because I really am. Uh, boy, quarantine stinks, but hopefully we're getting closer to the end. Give me a, I know, I know for all the many, uh, very wealthy influencers who listen to this podcast, get me a needle. Give me a damn needle in my arm. That's what I want. Uh, otherwise I think you nailed it. I mean, honestly, social media, like I'll, I'll, I'll let everybody know. Follow me on Goodreads. That's, that's a, that's like I've, I've re, uh, sort of, Repromise to myself that I'll, for a long time, I was like saying, okay, I finished this book. I'm going to go to Goodreads and say that I finished it. And then, and I stopped doing it for a few years and I decided this winter I'm going to do it. So if you're interested at all in anything that I do that's not football, then maybe that. Cool. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This has been great. I appreciate the chance to discuss your background a little bit. I love the range that it shows. There are so many different paths to get to a certain stage in any career. Great info on fantasy football betting, writing, and reading. So much good stuff here. I'd love to have you back on in the summer for a deep dive on how to win at fantasy football and maybe really get laser focused on 2021. But in the meantime, I simply can't wait till the next time we can go to a flea market or eat inside at a restaurant (laughs) without any reservations, literally and figuratively. Yeah, figuratively, maybe more so, right? Yes. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was very fun to talk to you. I haven't actually seen you in 11 months, so we got to Zoom and see each other. You're seeing me at my, like, my hairiest, uh, <laughs> facial hairiest and, and hairy, hair on top of my head hairiest. I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm not looking my best, but when we hang out next time, I'm going to groom. Yeah. And if people want to see the more groomed version, there is the YouTube channel. So that's still always out there. <laughs> cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Chris. Goodbye. Thanks again to Chris for taking time to join the show. Make sure to check out the Harris Football Podcast and also follow Chris on Twitter at Harris Football. I already can't wait to bring Chris back on the show in the summertime for a conversation focused on setting ourselves up for success for the 2021 fantasy season, everything ranging from draft day to in-season management. But for now, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. If you found value in the conversation, please share it with a friend. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would be extremely helpful. You can also follow me on Twitter at MLandis18. And one more reminder to check out Dimers.com for sports betting information you can benefit from all year long. We'll also be posting a write-up shortly capturing the top takeaways from my conversation with Chris. Next week, I plan to be back with an episode that focuses more on the hops side of the props and hops equation. I'll look forward to talking to you then. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. (laughs) 